0: Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us. My name is Robin Maggio, and I'd like to welcome you to our webcast about the guidance released by the U.S. Department of Education, Office of Civil Rights, Part 1, What the Letter Says and Why It's Important, with Paul Grossman. It is a pleasure to introduce today's guest expert, Paul Grossman. For over 40 years, Paul served as a civil rights attorney for the U.S. Department of Education, Office of Civil Rights, 30 years as its chief regional attorney in San Francisco. Paul has worked on every type of education discrimination matter, including securing a free and appropriate public education for school children with disabilities. Recently retired from OCR, Paul starts his third decade as an Adjunct Professor professor of Disability Law at Hastings College of Law, University of California. He is also a member of the Board of Directors for the Association on Higher Education and Disability, AHEAD, and, and on the Public Policy Committee of CHAD. Again, we are pleased to welcome today's guest expert, Paul Grossman.
1: Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thanks to the Center for making this possible, and for Chad for making this possible. And I want to thank all the parents and teachers and administrators and advocates, and I hope even a few students for caring enough about this subject to want to attend um, this webinar. And we're going to be talking about two documents today. Uh, both issued um, by the U.S. Department of Education Office for Civil Rights, issued quite recently. So one is a Dear Colleague Letter and a Resource Guide on Students with ADHD, and the second document is a short parent's guide or student's guide uh, summarizing um, what's contained in this otherwise very detailed and lengthy document. And I authentically and sincerely believe that these two documents will make a big difference in how students with ADHD are treated in our public elementary and secondary schools. Uh, These materials are provided to you for your personal use um, and all I ask is that you not uh, take these slides and repost them on the internet um, without proper accreditation. Um, I think we've already really covered uh, my own um, experiences Except I want to um, highlight one thing for you. In my 40 years with OCR, I did many kinds of cases, race, sex, national origin, elementary and secondary, post-secondary. And in that time, I saw an overwhelming need to address the needs of children with ADHD and elementary and secondary ed. And indeed, although the Dear Colleague letter reflects the work of a lot of people, I was the first author of this document precisely because I saw how much it was needed. And three years after I retired, with much help and advocacy by Chad, the document got issued and with much good work for many people at OCR and with much good advocacy by Chad. I don't take... Um, individual cases as for clients so if you have a child with ADHD I'm not the right person to ask uh, to represent you Uh, nor do I represent school districts except in this one limited capacity which is I'm available to do training on this document so really my sole objective is to address the widespread discrimination that I saw while I was working for um, OCR And indeed, in a few instances, I feel the failure to address the needs of students with ADHD led to suicide and other tragic outcomes and certainly to many disrupted families and to many disrupted student-teacher relationships that need not have been um, in such dire circumstances. So, why are these documents important? Well, these documents are a little less authoritative than a regulation or a federal court decision. But OCR was given by Congress the authority to interpret the Section 504 regulations and to issue guidance on those regulations. And so, although it's a little less authoritative than a regulation, this guidance is very important. And you should feel free to take these two documents to your local school district if you're having a dispute with them or if you want to educate them about the rights of students with adhd and i do note that there are other laws that um, protect students with adhd uh, if you're in a public school title two of the ada if you're in a private school title three of the ada unless the private school receives federal financial assistance which is rare but not impossible it is not subject to the requirements of section 504 which is really the topic today. In many slides today, you will see quote marks. Those are the actual words from the Dear Colleague letter. If they are not in quotes, then they are my words and my opinion. But what's in quotes, you should be able to show to your local school district as OCR's interpretation of the law which Congress has charged it with interpreting. Why these documents are necessary Well, for one thing, I see my own experience, and I see what OCR uh, has received as complaints. And here's a summary of those issues. Many school districts refuse to identify their children as needing an evaluation to determine whether or not they're eligible for services. Second, if an evaluation is necessary, the school district nonetheless impermissibly refuses to pay for the evaluation, or it might have the evaluation done by somebody who's not qualified to do an ADHD evaluation. Even if a student is evaluated as in need of special education related aids and services, or regular education with supplementary services, districts frequently fail to provide such services, sometimes providing none, sometimes delaying them, and sometimes providing highly limited services, very much less than is received by other students, particularly under the IDA, less services than the evaluation calls for. And they base it on um, what OCR would call erroneous thinking, uh, and we're going to get into that erroneous thinking later. In addition, some school districts deny requests for evaluation or for appropriate services, but they don't inform parents, hey, if you disagree with this, then you're entitled to challenge our decision through an independent, impartial, due process proceeding. Why else were these documents necessary? In 2015, CHAD itself conducted and shared with OCR the results of a survey of its members. And that survey revealed exactly the kinds of problems which I just mentioned, and moreover revealed that these problems are quite widespread. And then in 2016, OCR, after it was handed this evidence by Chad, decided to conduct its own analysis. And what OCR found was one in nine, nearly 10%, of its elementary and secondary school district complaints concerned alleged discrimination against a a child with ADHD. And they found that school districts were woefully, um, excuse me, some school districts were woefully ignorant about the nature of ADHD and how to address it in the school setting. So what type of schools are covered by this guidance? every elementary and secondary school. So that includes all public charter and magnet schools. It includes juvenile justice schools. And um, if there is a private nonsectarian school that receives federal financial assistance, then it's covered as well. So the guidance covers five topics. First is just coverage of students with ADHD under 504 in the IDA. The next stage is called identification, and identification is just deciding who should receive an evaluation. So those two um, concepts should not be conflated or put together. Identification and evaluation are two different steps. Identification is merely when a child is suspected of having a disability and therefore in need of special ed or related aids and services or supplementary services, then the child should be referred for an evaluation. An evaluation decides whether or not you have a student with a disability and what kinds of services that student might need. Placement, kind of a misnomer because it's not a geographical term. It means what services should be provided to the student, usually the result of a 504 or IEP meeting, and due process how can a parent appeal if it disagrees with a decision by the district? And we're going to follow this same organizational approach today. So let's begin with coverage. So an individual with a disability or a student with a disability is one who has an impairment that substantially limits a major life activity. So about three weeks ago, the Justice Department issued um, some guidance concerning Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act, and it specifically says, if an individual has ADHD, they have an impairment. But OCR has gone a step further, one of the most important things in the Dear Colleague letter, because it says ADHD is a disability, not just an impairment. If this manifestation itself expresses itself in such a manner as to substantially limit a major life activity. And then, and this is in quotes, OCR will presume, unless there is evidence to the contrary, that a student with a diagnosis of ADHD is substantially limited in one or more major life activities. So if you have a diagnosis for a student of ADHD, most likely they don't just have an impairment but rather they meet the full definition of disability. They are an individual with a disability. Now, that's not saying that that child necessarily needs special ed or related aids and services or supplementary services, but it does say you're going to need to consider those things because you have an individual with a disability. And I just want to add that even if... um, that presumption didn't exist. In 2008, Congress passed the ADA Amendments Act, and the ADA Amendments Act makes it easier to establish that an individual with ADHD has a disability. And that's because they have added to the major life activities that might be impaired by ADHD functions of the brain, thinking, concentrating, reading, and writing. And they also said, and this is very important, you must make a determination that the impairment substantially limits the major life activity without taking into account mitigating measures. So if someone's ADHD substantially limits their ability to concentrate, the fact that, for example, Ritalin makes it less than substantial is not to be taken into account. The child should be looked at in the unmitigated sense. And here's the thing I want you to understand many school districts act like the ADAAA never existed. And they do take mitigating measures into account in determining that the child is not disabled. Okay, this child may have ADHD, but it isn't substantially limiting a major life activity. And they're not taking into account the new range of major life activities. and they are taking into account mitigating measures which they should not be doing. And here's another important point. Even if a student is an individual with a disability, but the IEP or the 504 team determines that the student is not in need of any kind of supportive services in the classroom or in special education, that doesn't mean that the student is not protected from disability discrimination. If you're an individual with a disability and note OCR is gonna presume everyone with a diagnosis of ADHD is an individual with a disability, you are going to still be entitled to protection from a hostile environment on the basis of disability and from exclusion from programs or activities on the basis of ADHD, such as an athletic program, an extracurricular program. So even if you cannot convince an IEP team or a 504 team that your student needs supplementary services, if they're getting picked on in school on the basis of disability, they're still entitled to protections. There's still a duty on the school district to address that allegation, even though there is no 504 plan or IEP program for that student. I don't pretend to be an expert on the IDEA. Uh, When Matt Cohn comes on, he's going to cover this much more thoroughly. But I just want to point out, as Matt has provided to me in these three slides, that a student with ADHD sometimes is, in fact, covered by the IDEA as an other health-impaired individual. And often students with ADHD get covered under the IDEA because along with ADHD goes other um, easily um, covered easily included disabilities such as emotional disturbance or a specific learning disability. And we should be clear that if a child qualifies under any one of these um, categories, all the child's disability related um, needs must be addressed. And here's the definition of other health impaired. And if you read it, you can see why um, a case may exist Um, that a student with ADHD is covered by the IDEA. I'm going to be focusing on Section 504 which is OCR's jurisdiction. The The IDEA is not under OCR's jurisdiction. So let's get to that first stage, identification. And remember, identification is not proving a student has a disability. It's merely deciding that a student needs to be evaluated to determine whether the student has a disability and whether the student is entitled to some form of supports um, through the school system, special education, related aids and services, supplementary services in the regular classroom. So a school district has a duty to conduct an evaluation of any student who because of disability needs or is believed to need. So note here We're not talking about proof, we're talking about a belief. A belief that a child is an individual with a disability and needs one of these services is sufficient to create the duty to conduct an evaluation. And in addition, an evaluation must be conducted whenever there's a substantial change in the services that the district is proposing to give the student. So let's say a student is getting good services and you're happy that the student is receiving those services and then the district comes along and says, well, next year um, his grades are so good, uh, we don't think he needs any more services. They can't make that decision without first conducting a new evaluation. And let's face it, a student's needs can change over time. Particularly with regard to ADHD, there might be a change in medication. There might be um, new behavioral techniques that the student learns. So um, let's be aware uh, on our toes that a student with ADHD may, in fact, need um, a new um, evaluation. Well, who could recommend the student for evaluation? A teacher could, a school administrator could, any staff member who, quote, receives or receives information to lead them to suspect that a student has a disability. So, by the way, this could include the parent. And indeed, if you've gotten a diagnosis of ADHD for your child, you should bring that diagnosis to the school district's attention because that's significant evidence that the child needs an evaluation. And school districts must consider all major life activities not just learning so what this means is your child might have a problem in another area not just learning but that problem is relevant to the learning that's going on in school so what are the signs that a student who has adhd may be in need of an evaluation so ocr says well if a teacher or a parent Uh, observes that the student engages in considerable restlessness or inattention, inappropriate for their age or grade level. The student has trouble organizing activities or with communication or has skill deficits. That may well be sufficient. Other difficulties. So we have this term uh, in the ADHD scientific community. A lot of research is being done over executive functioning skills. And OCR, um, largely through Chad, I believe, was made aware of the concept of executive functioning skills. And so you will see this reflected in the Dear Colleague letter. So other indications to consider as a reason to conduct an evaluation. Demonstration of significant difficulty related to beginning a task, organizing, recalling information. And completing assignments such as homework and multi step class projects. And how many of us have seen that kind of problem in our children? Those are evidence of executive functioning impairments. And OCR specifically even uses the word executive function supports as um, among the kinds of supports that a school district ought to be giving a student. And we note that. Sometimes, a student, him or, him, him or herself, may develop their own supports or mitigating measures. These might include taking extra time to complete a homework assignment because it takes the student longer to employ the strategies that he or she has developed over time to break down a study question, conduct the research, or write an essay. Seeking help from parents, tutors, or, or um, um, group buddies taking frequent study breaks, or working in a quiet, isolated environment. So um, other mitigating measures might include taking medication, like Ritalin. So here's the thing. It might be very good that a student has identified these mitigating measures and is using them, but it shouldn't count against the student because it may be, in fact, raising a strong evidence inference that this is a student with a disability in need of special education, related aids and services, or regular education. So reliance on mitigating measures by a student can raise an inference that the student is in need of evaluation. And the converse is not true. In other words, since a school district is not supposed to take mitigating measures into account in deciding whether or not a student is an individual with a disability, a student can be academically successful but may still need supports um, to address challenges related to executive functioning or to behavior. Maybe you have a straight-A student but they have a lot of behavioral problems. Or maybe the student is successful because they're relying on mitigating measures that, frankly, need to be extinguished, like too much reliance on parents to assist them in completing homework. And as a, student, as a parent of a student with ADHD who's now in college, I have to say probably the single worst thing I did for my child is give them too much assistance on homework, um, leaving them not independent enough and masking the degree to which their disability really impaired them. Those limitations, that need to rely on mom and dad to do homework, actually should be evidence of the fact not that the student is successful because that's misleading but rather evidence of the fact that the student is an individual with disability who needs some kinds of supports in the classroom teaching the student the kinds of skills necessary to be a self-reliant individual. Sometimes what happens off campus is just as important as what happens on campus if these things are school-related. So, again, for example, what's going on at home with regard to homework? Um, What's happening to the student in other kinds of activities like um, working with a team of individuals or or being in an after-school care program? Maybe the student's coach complains that the student can never stay on task. All of those things are pertinent. So let's move on to the next step, which is, okay, the district and the parents agree, the child needs an evaluation. So let's talk about OCI's concerns in the Dear Colleague letter about evaluation. Well, worst of all, some districts just arbitrarily refuse to conduct uh, an evaluation of students with ADHD. Students are identified as needing an evaluation, but they don't get them. Sometimes the evaluation is conducted by the district, but it's conducted by someone who is wholly unqualified. A person who has expertise, for example, in identification of dyslexia or specific learning disabilities, it's good to know about a student with ADHD, but it's the nail they know how to hit but the student actually needs also an evaluation for their ADHD. What is the nature of their ADHD? What are its expressions? What impairments come? Is this an individual with highly limited executive functioning skills, for example? And to do that, you need the evaluation conducted by somebody who's qualified. Some districts get evaluations outside independent evaluations from parents, but they ignore them because they're outside. And I saw the last problem often in my own practice when I was working for OCR, which school districts say, oh, well, if you need a medical evaluation or psychological evaluation, that costs money. And since Section 504 is not a funding statute, we don't spend money to address the needs of students under Section 504. You'll have to pay for this evaluation yourself. That's not the rule. The district is responsible not for providing medical assistance to the student or pay the psych bills but it is responsible for the cost of using those kinds of professionals to do the evaluation some districts um, do not apply current legal standards or analytical approaches when they do an evaluation so they fail to do what the law calls a condition manner and duration evaluation with regard to how the student accomplishes major life activities such as reading or concentrating. So what does this phrase condition, manner and duration means? It means we are not just interested in outcomes like what's your GPA, we're interested in what you must do, what the student must do in order to get that let's say B average GPA. The fact that a student has a B average is not preclusive of the possibility that the student, how they got to that grade matters, and it matters because something needs to happen in the classroom either to permit the student to use their own mitigating measures or to teach the student new, successful mitigating measures often condition manner and duration analysis is exactly what uh, reveals limitations in executive functioning so if you just do the bottom line analysis what's the gpa but don't look at how the student gets to that gpa you are not following the current legal standards particularly guidance by the way recently issued by the justice department and then school districts improperly take into account mitigating measures not looking at how they raise an inference of disability but rather saying, well, I guess since your student gets good grades um, and he's taking his Ritalin, as long as he takes his Ritalin, he's not an individual with a disability. And again, you need to look at condition, manner, and duration and not count the medication against the student. So what's the scope of the evaluation duty? The evaluation must cover all suspected areas of disability and this is important particularly for students with ADHD because unfortunately if an individual has ADHD it's not unlikely they also have depression or anxiety disorder or dyslexia and a school district can't just say oh thank you for the independent ADHD evaluation we accept that but you are worried that there are many more impairments disabilities in play that also need to be addressed. And indeed, in some instances, those other um, impairments or disabilities are the most important thing to address. For example, for a student with severe anxiety or severe depression, that may be impacting their performance in school even more than the ADHD. Don't let the school district do this narrow um, investigation of disability if there is a reasonable basis to think other disabilities are also present. Um, all areas of educational need need to be um, explored and addressed. And it's very important to OCR as a civil rights agency that this evaluation be conducted on a non-discriminatory basis with regard to race, national origin, or sex. Well, let's focus on race and national origin for a second. Sometimes because of negative stereotypes about how students of color behave, school districts that might suspect ADHD as the cause of misbehavior in a white student may not consider it as a cause of misbehavior in a student of color. And this is a very serious and sad thing because, of course, it means the student struggles in school without support, and when they get into um, some kind of conduct problem, they don't have the same protections that students covered by Section 504 would have. And with regard to sex, um, it does appear that there are fewer uh, females with ADHD than there are males, but that doesn't mean there are no females. And particularly with regard to inattentive type ADHD, um, that may well be just as present in females as in males. So I just want to repeat that OCR is very clear that grades alone are not a legitimate basis to deny a request for an evaluation. A student can be substantially limited even when they are doing academically well. Um, And the limitation might be in reading, or writing, or thinking, or speaking. And again, GPA alone is not um, sufficient grounds to deny a student evaluation when you have many other indicators that this is an individual with a disability who need some kind of services in the classroom. Uh, again, let's not emphasize outcomes. Schools should be asking how difficult it is or how much time it takes for a student with ADHD in comparison to students without ADHD to plan, begin, complete, turn in work, complete assignments, and so forth. And. Inattentive type ADHD, OCR recognizes presents a special problem. And the special problem is the student may be well behaved and therefore not coming to the attention of the classroom teacher. And this is particularly um, an injustice that may strike uh, female students even more than male students. OCR makes clear, inattentive type ADHD, students with inattentive type ADHD may nonetheless need supports in the classroom. And they point out that it's a disservice to teachers who can't figure out why can't I get through to this student? Why isn't what I'm doing enough? And the answer is because you don't know who the student is. You don't understand. You don't have insights into the kind of information which will only be revealed through an evaluation. And here's the irony. School districts deny students evaluation and they're doing themselves a disservice. They can teach more effectively. Their teachers can manage the classroom better. They can have families with better child-parent relationships. If only we knew what's going on. It's in everyone's interest to conduct an effective, timely evaluation. What about response to intervention strategies? A problem which I frequently saw at OCR is school districts justified denying or delaying evaluations of students with ADHD because they were involved in a response to intervention strategy. And OCR is not critical of response to intervention strategies. It recognizes that they can work. It recognizes that they can avoid labeling students as being disabled, but what they cannot accept is RTI as an arbitrary reason for delaying an evaluation. So OCR takes kind of a middle position, which is you should never use RTI as an arbitrary reason not to conduct an evaluation or to delay, delay an evaluation. But you do want to think about RTI. So what do you want to think about RTI? Well, first question, and a very logical one is, is this particular RTI program designed to address my students needs many rti programs are almost exclusively focused on individuals with reading difficulties that might be one of your students needs but they may have many others pertaining to executive functioning and there's no point in waiting to see whether an rti intervention that focuses just on reading is going to help your child whose problem may be reading but also other problems like they're highly distractible or maybe they even have um, conduct problems. So particularly in those instances, RTI should not be a basis to wait. Sometimes RTI makes sense as a partial evaluation tool, but let's not give it three years. Let's give it a little time, get the information that RTI is gonna give us, and then let's fold that into a broader, appropriate evaluation. So um, there's nothing that says that engaging in RTI and having an evaluation must be sequential. Under the right circumstances, they should be implemented at the same time. So what about medical assessments? Well, first of all, OCR wants to make clear that there are a number of ways uh, in which experts believe ADHD should be diagnosed and it's not picking one; it's not making that scientific judgment. But it is noting that if a medical assessment is necessary, and this, by the way, could include a psychological um, assessment, uh, then uh, the district uh, must pay for that assessment. With one one exception, which we're going to talk about in a second, but it's very important that even if a school district doesn't always require medical assessment, that not be an excuse for not doing one when one is necessary. It remains important to recognize that evaluations must be done by a person who is qualified and competent to diagnose ADHD and whether the child's symptoms meet DSM diagnoses of ADHD and other impairments often associated with ADHD. So um, if a parent wants to offer to cover the cost of the assessment through their medical insurance, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, more power to you. You're saving the district an expense, and I don't know any school districts that just have money to throw away, so that's great. But you must clearly communicate with the district, and the district must clearly communicate with you because what we don't want is the ball to be dropped and the student to suffer while a delay is going on over who's gonna pay for this. So be clear with the school district, and if you can't pay, or even if you don't want to pay, then make sure the school district understands legally it must step up to the plate and cover these costs. So let's move on to the next step, which is the placement. Again, this is not a geographic term. This is a term means When the student is in school, what kinds of services beyond the services provided to all other students are they going to receive? This could be special education, and the fact, by the way, that it's a 504-only student does not preclude the possibility of receiving special education. Could be related aids and services in the special ed classroom, or in the regular classroom, or as a supplement to that, or supplementary services often those extra kinds of things that support the student in the regular classroom. So to get to this, OCR talks about erroneous beliefs that come from insufficient training of teachers and administrators. And I sincerely hope when I originally started this project um, eight years ago, that the Dear Colleague letter will land on the desk of every teacher, superintendent, special ed director uh, in public schools in America. And again, you're very, very welcome to be the person who takes that Dear Colleague letter. The links are provided at the stop start and present it to your uh, faculty or administrators. So um, here's erroneous beliefs. So these are things that are not correct or true. Related aids and services in an IEP, or more likely a 504 plan, are optional. They're not. If the team decides that a service is necessary, it should be provided. The range of services that may be provided by a school district or student with a disability under Section 504 are inferior to are limited in comparison to the range of services that may be provided under the IDEA. Again, this is incorrect. If the 504 team decides that a particular service is necessary, there's no legal basis to say, oh, well, because this is a 504 only student, um, too bad uh, he or she's not covered under the IDEA. We're not going to provide this service. Necessary is necessary. Services are unnecessary, because the student is academically gifted. A student can be academically gifted and still have highly impaired executive functioning skills that need to be addressed. Great, you're a straight-A student, but you also suffer from tremendous anxiety disorder and your family and you stay up all night, every night getting your work done. No, some kind of intervention needs to take place. A student who's eligible for services under Section 504 is not eligible to participate in gifted and talented honors accelerator or similar program. Once again, erroneous. If the student meets the qualifications for entry into the program, GPA, scores on a test, then they're still entitled to enter that program under the same standards as any other student more erroneous beliefs a student who is succeeding academically cannot be eligible, cannot be an individual with a disability not true a student who is succeeding academically but is engaging in misbehavior is ineligible under 504 seriously not true addressing frequent misbehavior in school uh, needs to be done through the 504 plan process if not under the IDEA let's not Put these individuals into the school to prison pipeline because the school district said, well, since the student gets good grades, there's nothing we can do. And the burden is not on the student to request that these aids and services that are agreed to in the 504 plan are needed. No, it is up to the school district to widely distribute the 504 plan to every teacher that student has and make clear that each teacher has responsibility for implementing uh, that plan. So who decides what the placement is? So um, there is not um, in the 504 regulations like the IDEA regulations as much specificity over procedure. But we know that school districts have pretty much um, moved in to create what's called a 504 team. And it's important that parents be in that team teachers be in that team, people knowledgeable about the results of the evaluation are on that team, and administrators with authority to administer or implement the placement. What can be worse than everybody agreeing on a placement, but since the administrator was not present, um, you go home only to find out you just wasted your time because the plan's not going to be implemented. The school district needs someone there to commit to implementing the placement now here's a tricky issue unlike under the IDEA regs the 504 regs actually don't call for a 504 plan so technically um, a plan doesn't need to be um, written up and that's very bothersome but here's how the dear colleague letter handles it and I think it's an entirely appropriate way which is it's nearly impossible to achieve compliance with section 504 unless you have a clear, effective way of communicating about what services the student needs and should be getting. So OCR kind of works backwards and says, if you don't have a plan and the agreements or the understandings reached in the 504 meeting were not clear, aren't communicated, aren't implemented, well then clearly you needed a plan. So y- your way of administering 504 is in itself violation. The special education related aids and services the students need that are included in the section 504 plan or other documents, so they don't care about the label, should be clear and as detailed as necessary so that the school and parents both understand what the plan requires. An important thing, one size does not fit all. So when the parents and the teachers and administrators get together, they shouldn't just say, oh, well, here's what we do for students with ADHD. We put them in front of the class, and we give them time and a half on exams. Goodbye. No, that's not adequate, because different students need different things. And again, some of those things may be addressing the executive functioning limitations of the students. So OCR gives examples extra time on exams, essays rather than multiple-choice exams, a quiet room for test-taking, placement in front of the class. Can I skip one slide here? No, sorry. So there are other examples, and here's an important one because it goes to executive functioning skills again. Direct instruction. So this doesn't mean just something that sort of happens magically in the classroom. This is something specifically designed to address the um, needs created by ADHD, such as teaching how to break up a large multi-step assignment into smaller parts or ordering strategies, specific and explicit instruction on how to reliably record homework assignments, organize information into class notes, start a multi-stage project, write more efficiently, and respond to challenges to attention or concentration in day-to-day activities. And, of course, some students may need behavioral interventions. Placement under 504 must not equate to inferior services. So we already highlighted this as an erroneous belief of many school districts. Some educators mistakenly equate reasonable modifications with low-cost or free services. Don't let that term, reasonable accommodation or reasonable modification, be misused. By the way, it's not even a term in the regulation. But somehow that word reasonable seems to many school districts to be about money, and it's not. If the team decides a certain service is necessary to address the uh, manifestations of the disability in the in the classroom setting then that's what should be provided don't let your student be treated under 504 as some kind of second-class citizen if a student with a disability is eligible for FAPE under section 504 but is not receiving FAPE services under the IDA the student is entitled to the provision of any services the placement team decides are appropriate to meet their in, in, individual educational needs regardless of cost services under section 504 can be as varied and comprehensive as necessary to meet the students needs note my friends these are in quote they are the statement of the Department of Education Office for Civil Rights one of the problems that OCR uh, uncovered and I experienced it in my practice as well is the fact that, a lot of times, a 504 plan is put together, but it's never communicated to the student's teachers. Unless there's nothing in the plan that pertains to a particular class, it violates Section 504 that the teachers, and in some degree the students, are unaware that the plan exists or the plan is, quote, so vaguely worded that the parties are unclear or disagree about what the plan requires. So note, the regulations don't require a 504 plan, but here's OCR telling you somehow there has to be a clear record of what needs to be done. It cannot be vague. With regard to medication, that's another service to be provided uh, in the classroom, and they split medication into two different groups. So if a student needs medication during the school day, an important qualifier, and the student cannot self-administer the medication, then the school district as a related aid and service must administer the medication. Conversely, if the student is able to self-administer, the student still may need some kinds of supports in doing the self-administration. And indeed, the point may even come as the student transitions through school where they went from needing the district to administer the medication to needing to learn to do the medication themselves, but they might need a support like um, letting the student leave the classroom discreetly so they can take their medication and come back. And now we get to the last stage which is due process or you may know it under the IDEA as procedural safeguards. So the important thing under 504 is many school districts have a 504 grievance procedure. A 504 grievance procedure is for you came to school, um, you're an individual with a mobility impairment, and you can't get into the school. You're a deaf person who came to a parent-teacher conference, and there's no interpreters. But if the issue is the services for the student, as developed through the evaluation and 504 plan process, you're entitled to due process, which is something different from a grievance procedure. And the most important difference is the due process procedure must be impartial and independent. And your opportunity to um, object to something at the identification, evaluation, or placement stage is subject to appeal through a due process procedure. And one of the biggest problems is school districts don't tell parents when their due process rights arise. So in my practice, this is when I saw it it most often. A parent would come to school and say, "Um, you know, I'm worried that my child has really serious attentional problems. Um, And they don't use the word executive functioning, but they tell stories that relate to executive functioning, like extraordinary time to get homework done. And the parent says, I think my child should get an evaluation. And the school district calls the parent back a week later and says, you know, I met with your student's teachers, and they say he he or she is just a lovely person. They're not um, a discipline problem. And, yeah, they're not straight A, but their grades are okay. So, see ya. No, that was a denial. You have been denied a request for an evaluation. And because you've been denied a request for an evaluation, the district had a duty to tell you at that point, by the way, if you disagree with this, you may file a due process appeal request. And, by the way, if you do, the odds are pretty good the school district's going to call you back and say, well, even though we don't think an evaluation is necessary, let's just do it. And part of the reason is a due process hearing is not easy for a school district to put together because they have to find an impartial individual, which means someone who's not a district employee, and an informed individual, somebody who knows about 504, somebody who knows about a free appropriate public education under 504 and convene an impartial hearing. And So once they're faced with how hard that may be, they often will instead um, elect to do the evaluation, which in my opinion is a win-win for everyone because you might find out this is not an individual with a disability or you might find out that it is, and that's a big help to your students' teachers and may well be a big help to your family relations. And um, this last slide here is really just about what it takes to put on that impartial hearing. Cannot be a district employee, must be a knowledgeable individual. So let's summarize as we wrap up. Um, And for the summary, I'm gonna use the second document that OCR issued called Know Your Rights, Students with ADHD, which is merely a two-page document. Now, if I was fighting with the school district, I think I might take the whole Dear Colleague letter with me. But if you can highlight some points succinctly and quote from this document, that's fine too. I think the primary purpose of this document was to give everybody a quick overview. So, federal law protects students from disability discrimination. Regardless of how well that student performs, a student who has trouble concentrating, reading, thinking, organizing, prioritizing projects because of ADHD may have a disability and be protected under Section 504. And note that there is no arbitrary limit to what those appropriate services might be, even including special education. School districts must determine if a student has a disability and needs services, and cost is not a legitimate basis to delay. So if the student needs a medical or psychological evaluation, you can't or don't want to bill it under your insurance, then the school district has to step up and pay for it. Just clearly communicate with the district about it. And note the signs that OCR highlights for why a students may need evaluation, and again, This is really about executive functioning skills. Um, Note that even a student who is academically successful but exhibits behavioral problems and challenges logically um, or inferentially related to ADHD needs an evaluation too. It's merely a suspicion that triggers the duty to do an evaluation. School districts can't. Just guess what the evaluation is going to say and say, therefore, we're not going to do it. Suspicion alone is enough. And then the range of services that's available, they are not to be arbitrarily limited to what's free or low cost. You cannot just exclude aids and services just because of their expense. And not every student with ADHD needs the same set of services. It's an individualized determination. And finally, as we've just discussed, school districts need to tell parents whenever their due process rights arise. And if the parent wants to go to a due process hearing, the school district needs to um, either agree to what the parent wants or convene the due process hearing, independent and impartial and with a qualified individual. And with that, I'm going to turn the um, uh, microphone uh, back to the center.
0: All right. Sounds great. Thank you, Paul. We had a number of questions come in about the timeline. Um, Do schools have a timeline for identifying and evaluating students for a 504
1: plan? So under the IDA, there is a timeline. There is no specific timeline under 504, but nonetheless, things must be done reasonably promptly, and if you're experiencing, you know, long delays and a runaround, um, it's time to either ask for a due process hearing or file a complaint with OCR. By the way, complaints to OCR, um, you're not charged um, any cost for OCR to investigate and resolve your complaint, but I note that OCR can easily take 180 days to resolve a complaint.
0: Okay, thank you. And we had a couple of questions about once parents have gone through this process and the school has put together a 504 plan um, for their child who has ADHD, can, can schools limit the number of accommodations that go on a 504 plan? So for instance, we had someone say, um, the school told me we could only put three accommodations on it because more than three would be too hard for the teachers to follow. Mm-hmm.
1: The answer is you cannot arbitrarily limit the number of accommodations on a 504 plan. And if the problem is the district agrees that, let's say, six are necessary, but three is um, three of them are not practical, are not realistic for teachers to implement in the regular classroom, then the district's going to need to figure out how else they can be delivered. Maybe there's going to have to be pull-out services or after-school services Um, But in in any event, that's just not, you can't just have an arbitrary limit. Under the IDEA, there's no arbitrary limits. Under 504, there's no arbitrary limits. What makes good sense in the classroom is a different question, but that only means, well, let's look at how they're going to be delivered. Maybe some teachers will deliver some accommodations and some teachers will deliver others. But don't just let a school district um, um, make some kind of made-up argument about what's reasonable.
0: Okay, thank you. I think that helps clarify. Um we did have somebody asked who do you ask for um an evaluation if you think that your child is in need of support at school.
1: So, so at I can only level. Oh, you mean who who do you go to at the school level to ask for the evaluation? Yep. Yes. So, um I think I would ask the special ed director, even though they don't necessarily implement Section 504, they should be able to tell you who can. And if not, I would ask the school principal. And if neither of those people can tell you, I think you have a violation of the law, because someone at that district actually should know how to do this. And Indeed, I would rather see it even in the online presence uh, of the school district, but I can't say that that's required.
0: Okay, great. And then we also had someone um, ask just kind of that one of these more basic questions about being evaluated. Does the school have to let you know if your child's being evaluated?
1: Absolutely. They can't evaluate your child without your permission.
0: Okay, thank you. And then um, are there any tools, uh, resources, other websites? that off the top of your head, you could recommend to parents if they're looking to looking for more information on 504 plans or
1: certainly the National Resource Center is one. Uh, Chad's own um, chad.org website. I happen to like the Parents Education Network. I honestly don't know um, where they're present all over the United States, but um, here in California, I think Parents Education Network. Um, is helpful. There is also across the United States, I think one office in every state and in some of the larger states, multiple offices of an organization called um, Disability Rights. So it's Disability Rights California, Disability Rights New York. And um, they often have people who give good technical assistance in this area. And on some occasions, when discrimination is brought to their attention, they may even help advise you or represent you. Well, I, I'm think sorry. I think it might be called the National Disability Rights Network, NDRN.
0: Okay, great. NDRN, the National Disabilities Rights Network. Um, well, I think that is going to wrap up our questions for today. And
1: just a concluding comment, if I may, please. I sure, spent Paul. five I spent five years at OCR working on this document and then three years with Chad advocating for it. A lot of people put a lot of time into it because we think we have handed you a powerful tool. So the more you know about it and the more you can use it, the better.
0: Thank you to our audience for joining us. This concludes our webcast. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes so we can continue to bring great content to you.
1: Children with ADHD can be prone to overstimulation. The holidays can be especially stressful. Know your child's limits and select holiday activities wisely. Make sure there is a quiet space where your child can go and regroup. Choose calmness over chaos. For more tips on making the holidays work for you, visit the CHAD website at www.helpforadhd.org. That's www.help and the number four, adhd.org.